Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Today's podcast is sponsored by San Diego-based MindTouch, a cloud-based software that helps companies take product documentation and turn it into a customer engagement channel that educates buyers and creates product experts to grow revenue. With MindTouch, you can create a self-service customer experience with your documentation that increases customer success and improves sales and marketing. Here at Voice of San Diego, we have a soft spot for MindTouch because its co-founder and chief technology officer, Steve Bjorg, is one of our loyal supporters and tech advisors. If you're looking for a way to improve customer experience, check out MindTouch.com. My name is Scott Lewis. I'm the editor-in-chief at Voice of San Diego and the host of Good Schools for All and the Voice of San Diego podcasts. If you're interested in sponsoring one of our podcasts and associating your company's name or message with the great shows we produce, please let us know. Contact Aaron Zlotnick at Aaron at voiceofsandiego.org. That's E-R-I-N at voiceofsandiego.org. My mom says my neighborhood school isn't good enough. How am I supposed to know my kids are getting the best education possible? Welcome to Good Schools for All, a podcast from the investigative news organization Voice of San Diego and the Education Synergy Alliance. We cut through the jargon and polarized debate to get you the news and ideas that matter. Good schools are at the heart of our democracy and economy, and we're about good schools for all kids. We hope you'll learn and maybe teach us something. It should be an excellent school in every community. Enjoy the show. My name is Scott Lewis. I'm here from, of course, the Voice of San Diego. And I'm Laura Cohn from the Education Synergy Alliance. Hi, Laura. Hey, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well this week. Good. So, school started. It's underway. Yeah, even up in Encinitas, uh, both kids are in high school now. High school. I know. It's it's terrifying. Yeah? It's not. It's going It's going uh, fairly well for both of them. The younger one's a freshman, and then I've got a junior. I feel like everybody talks about high school as though they're just like the gremlins after midnight. You know, like they just transform into these <laughs> horrible beings. It's I don't for for us it's not so much that but they are so much more their own people making their own decisions and so it's a lot of test of trust and mm-hmm. letting go. Can you make them do stuff still? Like I have trouble making my 6-year-old do stuff. Not very successfully, no. Yeah. You can appeal to family obligation or or, or at like least I, we can't. Yeah, guilt works pretty well yeah. sometimes. Um wow. yeah, bribery sort of goes out the window they see through it right away and punishment is not much available. So, wow. yeah. <laughs> well, so we are going to talk today about testing. So, I remember last year I was talking to the principal of our kids school and and we were talking and there were these two kids impatiently waiting for us to finish as they were holding their laptops in their hand because they were trying to talk to him because they couldn't get connected. They had to make up the test and they couldn't get it all connected. And I, it was at that point that I realized 
It's a different world. Tests are being done on laptops and on computers all across uh, San Diego these days. All across San Diego, California, and most of the nation as well. We've Um, talked about this before. This is the smarter balance test. Now, is this a California version or is this a national version? There's a national version that each state is able to adapt. I'm pretty sure California pretty much implements the Smarter Balance as it's been um, created nationally. There's a competing version of the Common Core test called the Park Assessment. So some states picked Park, some states picked Smarter Balance, and then there's a cadre of states that ended up opting out of either one and they're doing their own thing. Right. So this isn't, people aren't filling out bubbles. They are not, uh, there's not a, a bunch of teachers trying to grade these things in in classrooms with stacks of test to grade. Right. right. The, the, the bubble sheets and number two pencils of old are gone. And uh, so these are these, these tests are also special in the way that they're not, not everybody is getting the exact same test necessarily. You're answering a question, which gives you another question based on how well you did on the previous one. And you can go through it uh, in a different way. And then it measures how well you did on the whole thing mm-hmm. and, and spits that out. Right? Which gives more precise feedback to teachers about where kids are. So that adaptive aspect of it is um, is a really great development for this new set of tests. Well, we're going to talk about the released data that came out on August 24th. Now, schools and teachers had that those scores for a while. Yeah, uh, but now they've been validated, and we get to look at them and look at schools, and we'll tell you how to do that. But first, we're going to jump this week in, and we'll also talk, of course, about our number of the week and what's working. But first, we're going to talk uh, to one of the people at the county level. This is Stephen Green. Steve Green, he is the senior director for assessment and accountability and evaluation at the county office of education, and he's going to give us kind of an overview of a lot of what this data means before we actually start spitting out some of the examples and interesting things that we see and a little guide for how you can look up your school or your potential school and sort of understand how things are going. So, Steve Green. Okay, we're joined in the Great Voice of San Diego podcast studio in downtown San Diego by Steve Green. He's the Senior Director for Assessment, Accountability, and Evaluation at the San Diego County Office of Education. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. Thanks Good for coming. Here. So you um, are in charge of sort of understanding this assessment uh, system for San Diego County. We have a new um, assessment test, a way to understand where students are. Tell us about it and what has changed and, and maybe what the new results tell us. Sure. Thank you. Um, We have the Smarter Balance Assessment System, which we've actually had in place now. This is the second operational year. A year prior to that, we also did a statewide um, uh, field test of that. And it assesses students in English language arts and mathematics. And it's aligned to the Common Core standards or the standards that were adopted by our State Board of Education. Right. And these are the tests that are done uh, on a computer. Correct. Yeah. So students engage on a computer and there's a specific test for English language arts and mathematics. And it's a twofold system. One is a computer adaptive test where students are engaging with a computer and they're answering questions. And then depending on how they're responding, the, the computer is adapting to um, whether they answer correctly or incorrectly. And they'll see items that might become a little more complex or rigorous, or if they're missing items, it might step down a little bit. And the purpose of that is to identify where students are in relation to the expectations around the standards being assessed. And there's a second component, which is a performance task. And that's a little more open-ended and students are 
applying their thinking, doing some critical thinking and reasoning, which they do in the other portion as well, but students might be engaged in more writing and, and um, sharing their approach to maybe solving a math problem. And um, it's a lot different than what we had done before with a multiple choice kind of fill in the blank type of assessment. So how is that second part scored? The second part scored, um, well, um, good question. Part of it is machine scored. So there are some short responses <clears throat> and or items that the computer, the artificial intelligence would be able to recognize and, and give a score to. The other component is hand scored. And that means there's an actual human reader and that those folks are calibrated and trained through the state board or um, through the Department of Education, excuse me. And so it's a rigorous process to become a, a reader. And then there's a vetting process where they calibrate regularly to ensure that there's consistency in the scoring of those. So are we to simplify that? Could we say if you maybe start working on a math problem, but you don't get the exact answer correct, you, you're still getting credit for that somehow? That could be the case. A student could set up the context to a problem. Um, in the performance task, there's multiple steps that students would go through. So they may have an entry-level understanding and begin to uh, structure a problem or their approach, uh, apply a strategy, may be correct, but they may not ultimately get to the final component. So they would get some credit for the work done versus the old format. If you just didn't have an answer, it's kind of right or wrong. So students have the ability to earn some credit around, again, what they're able to demonstrate. Let me ask you, so a lot of this stuff is is talking about meeting or exceeding grade level expectations. So for example, San Diego Unified sent out a press release about uh, how proud it was for some of its results. And it said San Diego Unified students also made gains in mathematics, increasing four points over the last year and ranking second among large urgent, uh, urban school districts across the state. Okay, and then it said the testing found, and this is mathematics, 45% of students performing at or above grade level expectations what does grade level expectations mean? Right. So in relation to the standards, so every single grade level has a set of standards and that basically is the outline of what students should know and be able to do. Okay. And so the assessment is designed then to establish where our students in relation to that expectation. The, the assessments that we give actually have four levels. <clears throat> Excuse me. The highest level is standard exceeded. And those are students who are not only meeting what the, the minimum expectation for being proficient, if you will, but they're actually going above that. So they're, they're demonstrating quite a skill set of ability to think and reason and um, you know, demonstrate that through the assessment. Meeting standard would be the threshold then, which would be the minimum expectation that we would want students to leave a grade level with. So when that word prof proficient you use, sorry, Laura, sorry, so that word proficient you use, that was the main word used in the past, right? Um, and that's been shed for this, this sort of minimum or expectation. Mm -hmm. What is your understanding of the difference of those two words? Right. So there was actually a, a label in, under this uh, California standards test of being proficient or yeah. advanced. The term proficiency still exists in education. It means that you're demonstrating the requisite skills and knowledge to, to basically show that you understand and you're, you're competent with the, with the content and with the, what you need to demonstrate. So I think I used proficient from the standpoint of not as a label as much as students are showing right. what they would be expected to know and be able to do. So I should read this and it says, testing found 45% of students performing at or above grade level expectations. That means 45% or 55% are performing below the minimum standard of mathematics for that grade level. Right. So for the grade level expectation, that would be correct. Mm. Now there's two categories that, that are underneath that exceeds and meets. And the, the one right beneath that is near, um, oh, students okay. are near standard. So those are students who have some skills and abilities relative to what the expectation is, but they didn't demonstrate sufficient. Um, and there's uh, a further one down that, that says just standard, not met. Mm. Mm -hmm. 
So you've now we've talked about the old test and the new test. What's your professional judgment about whether this new test is better than the old California um, test? Fantastic question. We get asked that a lot. So, I mean, number one is just an understanding that this this assessment, the new Smarter Balance assessments are aligned to new standards. So that's the first component. Mm-hmm. So it's a, we can't really compare because the standards we had before and the way we were assessing was through multiple choice. So we weren't able to really see as deeply how students think, how they reason and the, the critical thinking. It was more, can they find the best answer out of the four mm-hmm. options that are there? Mm-hmm. So fundamentally it's different. Um, the new assessment really does get at critical thinking and application. There are open-ended items where students have to write a response in. Um, there's the performance task, which is very sophisticated. And again, that's where students are truly demonstrating what they know and are able to do. So from a standpoint of, are we getting a better understanding what students know and able to do? I would say yes, with the new assessments. That said, because it's more rigorous and more challenging, we're also seeing that at the outset, students are not necessarily where we would want them to be. So have we arrived in terms of student performance? I would say no, but it, it's, a, I think, a more accurate reflection of what the standards are expecting. And if we map that forward to college and career readiness, you know, do students have the skill sets that future employers are looking for, that universities are looking for? This, this new assessment is more aligned to those expectations and what you know, the world of work might look like for students. The older assessment didn't do that. Right. So is it, I think... I think, but correct me if I'm wrong, that one idea of doing the test in this new way is that it's harder to game. That is, um, is the idea that schools and um, teachers can't just teach kids test-taking skills and have them show as better than maybe their actual abilities in that subject is or are? I don't know. I mean, I would I would completely agree with that. And what I tell teachers, you know, there was a, in the old days, you know, under the old paradigm, there was, you know, kind of preparing for the test those few weeks or maybe even the month before people start getting into test prep mode. And I think it, it's getting at a little bit of what you're what yeah. you're sharing. With this, test prep mode is students having a deep understanding of what they need to know and be able to do. And you can't do that two weeks before the test. I mean, that needs to be the focus throughout the year. And it needs to be the focus across years. So that, you know, for a student in third grade, which is the first grade level assessed, students need to be proficient readers. They need to be able to read multiple texts and analyze that at the appropriate grade level and, you know, expectation for that grade level. But that's not something that you can game. Uh, Laura, there was talk, I remember maybe last year or the year before, saying like we were about to enter these new testing procedures and there was going to be kind of a shock. Everybody was saying like we were all going to be like shocked about how poor it was performing and we need to brace ourselves for that. Mm -hmm. Is that what we're witnessing? Is that happening? Yeah, I think... I don't know. I'm interested in Steve's response. I think we did a good enough job of letting everybody know that they shouldn't compare the old tests to the new right. test levels that were under a new paradigm and that um, we're uh, measuring kids against more rigorous standards, but also a more authentic test. And so I haven't um, there. I don't think we've experienced that much uh, shock and, and misunderstanding of the comparison of the two tests. But Steve, what's your, what are you seeing? No, I, again, the really good questions. And I appreciate this opportunity to share. If you go back to the first year of the California standards test and looked at the achievement that students had, those levels were very, very low on a, on a less rigorous assessment. So what's interesting, yes, if we compare the last year of CSTs to the first year of Smarter Balance, we notice a dip in overall achievement, if you will. But And, and again, we don't really want to compare the two tests, but because it's more rigorous, we had fewer students right now meeting the expectation. But if you compare year one of Smarter Balance to year one of the CSTs, we actually fared really well which is interesting. We weren't at the levels, the lower levels of proficiency that we had early on. 
I'm not sure whether we should make that comparison. Well, yeah, totally that different test, totally different time. Completely, absolutely. <laughs> different standards, as you said. <laughs> right. And again, but I guess the point is we were worried that, you know, only maybe 5 or 10% of students might, if there was that concern, that would be such a shockingly low number. Okay. And, and so I guess the point I'm trying to make is there, after year one, there was a feeling that, well, do we need to do better? Absolutely. But was it completely, you know, single digit numbers of students meeting or exceeding standard? And it wasn't. Now, again, when you disaggregate it and look at different subgroups, there are different stories there. But if you look at the overall aggregate, I feel that most districts felt like, okay, we made it through that first year. And while it's down, it's not, you know, maybe their their expectations were a little bit exceeded. Let me ask you, um, when you get this data that comes in, what do you look for first? So um, from the county perspective, what we want to do is compile a report that we can put together for our district. So they have a frame of reference. So initially what we do is we just take the aggregate data. So in other words, the whole county, all the schools, all the districts, and we um, analyze that against what, what's the state, where was the state relative to the different grade levels in English language, arts, and mathematic, math, mathematics, and then how do we match up against that? And then we break it down by the different subgroups. So we look at English learners, low-income students, um, race, ethnicity, Oh, excuse me, ethnicity categories, and just try to dissect that information. And then ultimately look for where, since this is a second year, it was the first opportunity to start to look for pockets of growth. What do we start to notice in terms of movement of students? Did you see any? Absolutely. I mean, there was definitely, from a countywide perspective, there was an increase that actually matched the state increase in English language arts and math. So we bumped up overall at, at the same rate that the state did, but we're, we're still ahead of the state in terms of our overall performance. So you have the word accountability in your title. Yeah. How does 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 that responsibility that you have come into play with these smarter balanced test results? And if so, how? So a good question. So accountability through the county office is we're kind of an extension of the state, ultimately, if you think of it that way. So with the new local control and accountability plans, the local control funding formula, the county is the entity that the districts would send their completed LCAPs to, and they would go through a review process. Which that's is done by local the, control accountability plans. Correct. And so the county office, we review those and we provide feedback. And if everything is, um, once everything's complete and well to go, then we forward it on to the state. So they'll have an approved LCAP. So that's the accountability component. That said, within um, what districts need to do, one of the metrics that they are responsible for is academic achievement. So from that standpoint, these assessments, the Smarter Balance Assessments for English Language Arts and Mathematics, are a component of what districts are held responsible for, so increasing achievement for all students. So when we think about it through an accountability, we aren't holding districts. It's not my role to tell a district you did a good job or you didn't do a good job, but we're there to provide support. So if there's a sense that the scores aren't where we would want them to be, then the entire county office, we have services and supports that we would help those districts with, that might be something they write into their LCAP that they would want to focus on and, and, and get help with. So you point out to districts if you've noticed that their performance is lagging other similar districts in the in the county or if there are schools in their districts that are lagging? So we work very closely. We have a network of uh, what we call the data and assessment network. So all, all the folks that in the different districts who are responsible for their reporting, you know, we network together. And so if they notice something and say, hey, Steve, you know, this is what we're seeing. What's the county's take on that? Or what are you seeing in other districts? Because, again, it's kind of a little bit challenging when you're at a district level. You, you become very focused on, on your own data. And then from a county, we kind of have a broader lens. But typically the approach is you want to look at where you are. You want to use that information to feed it into your future plans for what, what you want to do to move student achievement. 
Let me ask you, we had a, we did a story at Voice of San Diego several or a couple months ago about a school board member, Kevin Beiser, uh, at the San Diego Unified School District, who was also a teacher in Sweetwater, and he had uh, been encouraging parents not to take the test, uh, not to take these tests at all or to opt out, as it's called, um, and that, that's not he's not supposed to do that. He's supposed to just, he can say that it's an option or something, but he was actually used the word encourage. Uh, when you, is there any reason that parents should feel more comfortable about these tests than maybe previous standardized tests? Uh, or what, what makes it, uh, you know, something that uh, um, they, they shouldn't opt out of? I mean, I think people can make choices for what they want sure. to do. I mean, what I would advocate for is this is one measure of a student's achievement, and it's a fairly significant one in the state of California. I mean, this is, you know, it would be like practicing for a baseball game and never playing the game. Mm -hmm. So it is a way that schools, districts, you know, teachers get a sense of how well their programs are working for students. So, I mean, at the macro level, it gives us information about achievement. Um, you know, there's a lot of concern. I know California in general has actually had a very small opt-out movement relative to other states where it's been extremely significant. And I believe that a component of that is that there is a fundamental belief and understanding that these tests aren't used for some other purpose, that it's not utilized for teacher evaluation. It is to get a sense of where are our students, how are they performing, and then again, to feed back into the system. So what do we need to do now to move achievement? That's what I would say to uh, parents is that the they're low stakes tests for the students, really. They're, they're higher stakes for the schools and the school districts as they should be because that's um, what they're designed to do. Mm -hmm. um, but by having your child participate in the test, you're helping the school to understand its performance better, to help the teacher understand her or his performance better. So it's, um, uh, it's only to the, to the benefit to take the test. Right. And I think another thing that came up, if I may, um, there was a lot of concern, and you hear it out there, that we're over-assessing students. I think that kind of feeds into a little bit of that, that there's a concern that all that's happening in classrooms is that, you know, just this, this large-scale assessment is occurring. And honestly, if you look at a 180-day calendar, which is typical for a school district, and then let's say a five-hour instructional day at a minimum, that's 900 hours of instruction. The Smarter Balance assessments, the estimated time for grades three through five is six hours. I mean, that's less than 1% of a school year. And as you go into the upper grades, it's a little bit longer, about seven hours for middle school and seven and a half at um, 11th grade. So again, that's a small fraction. So, you know, there, there is also a notion, I hear it often, and, and, and a lot of times when we're in public forums or the parents are there, you know, that we're spending too much time testing. So I'm not quite sure. I think, you know, different things get rolled together. But from this California assessment, the Smarter Balance for ELA and Math, it's, it's less than 1% of a school year. Let's talk about the timing. For So the students take the test in the spring, um, April-ish, May? Is right, it's it? about 67% of the school year. So there are actually guidelines for when the assessment needs to be administered, but that would be correct. I mean, some districts, if they start early, in, kind of in the summer, if they start in July, they might have a March window, but typically you're in that April-May. Okay, and then the results come in for the districts. They get to see the scores a little early around July, and then the public sees them in August. So that's a, it's now the whole new school year, basically. Well, so actually that's not entirely correct. Um, within three weeks, districts are beginning to get their scores and that's part of the online assessment system. And this year I heard from a lot of districts in, well, nearly all of them that are in our data and assessment network. Um, again, those are the folks at the, the districts responsible for administering the tests that within three weeks to four weeks, 
they have an online reporting system where the student information is already going into. So that's considered preliminary. It's not intended to be a public release, but districts can start using that for looking at their programs, starting making decisions about what has been working, maybe what, what might need to be shifted. But you're right. The statewide release typically is, um, well, we just went through that window about a week and a half ago, kind of end of August. Let me ask you, I know this isn't your area of deep expertise, but can you help us understand what uh, at the surface level is occurring statewide to help parents sort of evaluate uh, how their schools are doing? There's a new bill, uh, Shirley Weber just got to the governor's desk uh, that sets ambitious statewide standards for school uh, performance and establishes expectations for comprehensive and continuous improvement. Now, good, I can, but I'm, right. I'm interested in understanding. Can you give us just a broad level overview of what you understand is happening and, and, and what that might mean for what parents can do? Sure, I'll do my best. And I don't want to speak to that bill specifically because I'm sure. not as familiar with it, but from the accountability perspective, so that the LCAP that we mentioned earlier, the accountability plans. So the state is developing um, criteria for what would constitute you know, schools doing well or not. And it's a color-coded matrix system. I mean, it's a little bit, there's a lot of discussion about whether it's the ideal system or not. But basically speaking, I'll just, if we talk about the test scores, there basically would be two lenses to look through. One is they call status. So what is the level of achievement within a given school and or district? And that would be the percent of students at standard met or standard exceeded. Mm -hmm. Then there's another lens to look through, which is growth, which I believe is a really good move because while you may not have schools that are at the high level of status yet, they may not have all of their students you know, meeting or exceeding standards, but they made tremendous growth from year one to year two or from year two to year three, that will be recognized. So I think from a parent perspective, I would want to look through two lenses. One is, how's the overall achievement at, at my neighborhood school? And then is that school growing? And we had a little bit or something similar. We had like a similar school ranking under the API model before where you could kind of get a sense of how are schools that are similar, you know, comparing versus just a straight API three-digit number. This system may initially be a little more complex because there will be a lot more facets to it, but I believe that it will yield more actionable information for parents. And if I can, I'll give you a case in point. Um, working with an elementary school principal reached out to me. She wants to do some um, professional development with her teachers to understand what the test scores mean and how that can change instruction. And what we noticed is while their overall um, level of students meeting or exceeding standards did go up, it went up 11%, they still overall are not where they need to be. And, and you know, they, everyone understands that. But the other thing that happened, and this is really unique, if you look at the standard not met category for that school, and again, for, for multiple subgroups, not just at the overall level, they diminished that by over 20%. So what does that mean? That group of, that cohort of students right there in those three grade levels, this is elementary, so three through five, moved up a level to standard nearly met. Now, have they arrived at the destination? No, but are they closer? Yes, this is a school with momentum. This is a school on a winning streak that is now within striking range, if you will, of moving students into that standard met category. Now that might not happen in one year, but the reason she wants to capitalize on this professional learning opportunity is point out to the staff that, yes, you know, over our overall achievement is at 32%. That's where they are. They were 21 last year. But the, so there's growth and that should be celebrated, but it's that bottom level moving up. That means more students are closer to expectation. That changes what instruction might look. That changes the interventions that might be offered. And so again, from a parent perspective, if I were to look at that new model now, I would, I'm presuming, and again, never, nothing's fleshed out and there's a board meeting coming up next week where things will be voted on, but that would be a school potentially that could show a high level of growth 
So their overall status, maybe not so high yet, but growth could be, you know, on that bright blue or whatever that color will be to show, hey, there's some tremendous gains going on here. Right. And from a parent perspective, um, knowing that growth can show you a school that's on the move, that's, you know, that's got a lot of momentum behind it and um, some dynamism among the um, leadership and the teacher core. And that might be a place that you would give a second look to, even if you're not so uh, comfortable with the overall level. Is that? Yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. You might look at that initial and say, wow, 32%, you know, that school's not doing well, right? I mean, that would be an okay, easy Okay, but schools assumption. at the top of the range are going to mm-hmm. be, they won't get much growth. Well, and that, so that's what could be a, a, could be a flaw in the new model. And I, I don't know how that will be accounted for. So I don't want to misspeak here. There may be a, a, a recognition that if you're already a top performing school, you know, you're near the ceiling already. Right. So, and I'm not sure what that algorithm or how that will be quite factored out, but you're right. There's, there's going to be kind of diminishing returns at some point if nearly everybody is meeting exceeding standards. So you would need to maintain, and I'm assuming that maintain would probably fall in there somewhere. I'm just not sure what that looks like yet. Well, Stephen Green, uh, the uh, Director of Assessment, Accountability, and Evaluation at the County Office of Education, can't thank you enough for coming in. It was great. Well, thank you for this opportunity. Appreciate it. Well, that was interesting. I think one of the things that always fascinates me about school testing is there's there's obviously a very significant, palatable frustration with this stuff with testing in the districts, in the opt-out movement and in that stuff. And and the districts always say like, oh, you shouldn't judge us on them. But then what's ironic is that when they get good scores, they're sending out <laughs> press releases about how great they're doing, right? The, yeah. We saw that this week with the San, or uh, last week with the San Diego Unified School District. Uh, they put out a press uh, news release saying that they uh, had, you know, the biggest sort of growth or uh, best performance among urban, large urban school districts. For example, they said San Diego Unified students ranked first in the state among large urban districts in English language arts with 57% of all area students either meeting or exceeding grade level expectation. And as we talked about with Steve, uh, that is the difference this year, right? Meeting and um, exceeding expectations. What is the difference between expectation and proficiency mean to you? It's really not, it's not much different. These are all synonymous. It's, um, these tests are designed to calibrate how many students are performing at what the education community deems to be grade level. Mm -hmm. And so a typical, they've defined what a typical third grader or what an an optimal, I should say, what an optimal third grader um, would be performing. And they've designed a test to count, to gauge whether um, kids are performing at that level. And then so now we get to know which kids or how many kids are on track relative to what we think the right expectations are for Is it optimal or is it minimum? Steve used the word minimum standard or expectation for that level. Well, um, with this latest set of standards, it's, 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 it's safer to talk about it as optimum because the standards have been calibrated to what we think of as career and college ready. Um, So um, I mean, optimum is the, best, you know, fulfilling your personal best as a student. But as a system, if we believe that if kids stay on track on grade level, um, as, as evidenced by these tests and other evidence all through the years that they will, they'll be able to succeed, um, after they graduate from high school. Okay. Well, we, uh, or I shouldn't say we, you have, uh, pulled some of this data and looked at it and you're using your Excel skills to 
um, sort it a little bit and see what you see. So what kinds of things stood out? First of all, that we have some sort of broader uh, measures of, of, of the achievement gaps, as we call them. Then this is the, you know, the gap between how well uh, economically disadvantaged folks are, are performing compared to um, their peers and how well different uh, demographic groups are performing compared to mm-hmm. others. The idea being like, obviously those, those kinds of gaps are just unacceptable. So what uh, did you pull out of it? What did you see as far as some of those gaps first? Well, first, of all, I just want to say when this data comes out, it's just a lot of numbers. And um, and yet it's one of the leading ways that we can tell how our schools are doing. And so the challenge is and it's just a dipstick once a year, which is one of the reasons that districts appropriate and school folks appropriately urge caution around them. It's just how kids are doing on this one test one time a year and they need to and and generally they do look at how kids are doing in lots of different ways lots of different measures including some that are non-academic like um, attendance and um, and suspension and expulsion rates and other things but it is a really important one and especially because we think this test is a really good test as we talked about with Steve we want to see our kids performing well on it so one of the things aside from just the overall level and um Steve mentioned this, but just to repeat that we've got 56% of all the kids who took the test in San Diego County meeting the grade level expectations in English language arts. That's still almost half or, you know, just a little over half of kids meeting these grade level expectations that we want them to meet. And so there's a lot of room for growth. And on the math side, it's even um, more worrisome with just 44% of kids meeting the standards overall. Right. And that San Diego Unified press release, I said they were very excited about that, but they also showed 45% meeting or exceeding grade level expectations for math. That means 55% are not. That's right. So a lot of work to do. And then the results get even more worrisome when you start to disaggregate them. So to look at different student groups. So for example, for the English language arts test, um, the state gives us data for both what they categorize as economically disadvantaged students and then non-economically disadvantaged students. And um, on English language arts, 41% of the economically disadvantaged students met the standards but 71% of, of the more wealthy students met the standards. And so that's a gap of 30 points just based on family economics. Yeah, and in English language arts for uh, the different demographic groups, there's also still a significant achievement gap. Uh, black students tested at 41% meeting or exceeding, Latinos 43%, and then uh, whites at 71%, and Asians at 81% meeting or exceeding. So uh between black and Asian students there, that's a 40% or 40 point gap. It's huge. And it's really troubling. And um, although all the, I mean, I don't know about all, but almost every school for sure improved between last year and this year, which is not surprising because um, I worked at RAND early in my career and some great researchers there posed the question uh, about what, what's the trajectory of tests generally? And they almost always improve in the second year of a new test. People mm-hmm. get used to the test, both the students who are taking it and the teachers also. So yeah, everybody improved, but the achievement gap did not um, because everybody improved. So um, upper income kids improved and lower income kids improved. And the net result for San Diego County anyway, was that the gaps um, both race-based and economic-based didn't 
uh, didn't close. Right. And then uh, this is again across San Diego County. Um, math, uh, it was it was even starker. Uh, black students, uh, 29% meeting or exceeding. Latino students, 29%. Whites, 59%. Asians, 78%. So uh, the that, that's another interesting point. The, the whites compared to English language versus math, they fell off a lot more than, than Asians did. Um, but uh, but the gap between black and uh, Latino and Asian students, there's 49% on math and, and meeting or exceeding, 49 percentage points, excuse me, uh, meeting or exceeding. That's, that's, a, that's the gap. That's the achievement gap. We have a real equity problem in American schools, including in San Diego schools. These are San Diego numbers, and we, we are grappling with it, but not successfully yet. Yeah, so you pulled out, uh, I think, some interesting data on on individual schools across the county that were doing things uh, quite well, quite um, not as far as this test goes. So, what was you know when you looked at third graders because that's your particular fascination, right? You're uh, really uh, interested in that preschool through third grade. Well, that's a very crucial time, right? Yep, prenatal to third grade is what um, the P3SD work is that the Education Synergy Alliance does. So, of course, I zeroed right in on the third grade results as soon as they came out. And so it's one thing to look at um, how all kids are doing in a school, but to sort of control for these differences in in family background. Um, I, I pulled out specifically how schools are doing with their kids who are economically disadvantaged. So that's a little bit more apples to apples. Um, and uh, when you sort, when you take all the elementary schools in San Diego County and sort them on the performance of their economically disadvantaged students, you get a range from 0% at two schools, 0% of poor kids meeting the standards, up to um, uh, 83% at uh, one school and a few schools at the 79, 78, 77% level. So there are a bunch of schools in San Diego County who are getting the vast majority of their low-income kids to meet grade-level standards, um, which is really exciting. And But also, I feel like, puts a big um, um, sense of urgency and imperative on the schools whose low-income kids are doing poorly at the other end of the spectrum to know that they can do better by their students. Yeah, you, that that's often used as a discussion point, right? That well, if if a student is struggling and they're poor, that's like obvious or something. That's like their almost their destiny. And um, what you're showing, I think, with some of that data is that there are schools with significant groups of poor kids who are do are helping them succeed. Yeah. So, okay, well, there's a lot of work to be done digging into that. Um, one of the interesting ones you pulled up uh, was that there was a there was a third graders and you found a school that was 97% of them were meeting it or exceeding uh, standards. And we went to go see which school that was, typed it into the code, and no surprise, right? No surprise. So this is looking at all kids in the third grade, and that would be La Jolla Elementary mm -hmm. that got almost every single one of its students to meet the grade-level expectations for reading. And actually, they hold that um, they hold that position for the math side as well with 98% of mm -hmm. their kids meeting grade level standards. Right. And so obviously you have a situ situation there where probably most of the kids, all the kids are getting um, the nutrition they need, the support they need, and uh, teachers are lining up to teach at a school like that. Uh, has 
pretty much every advantage you can think of, all the all the services, the location, the safety, all that stuff. Absolutely. I would just um, credit them, though, because yeah. 98%, 97% is an extraordinary um, accomplishment. Kids are just really thriving there. And yes, the, you know, many of those kids come in with significant advantages. Um, but that said, that's that's a great result. What was one of the schools that was, um, you know, for economically disadvantaged kids, what was one of the schools that was that was you know really significantly helping them apparently? Um, so the ones that really stood out for um, serving the economically disadvantaged kids in the English language arts side, we have San Onofre Elementary in Fallbrook School District and Grant K eight in San Diego. Um, also Parkview Elementary in Chula Vista. Those were the top three. Um, and they had uh, respectively 83%, 79%, and 78% of their low-income students meeting the reading grade-level standards. So might want to look at what's happening to those schools and, and extrapolate out what we can and apply. It does seem, from your initial glance, that some of the schools that are more integrated might have some, some more success here, right? Right. So as soon as you start digging into these data, you start to notice some interesting patterns. And so one of them is that among the schools that are um, getting the best results for their low-income kids, they tend to be more integrated. So with a percent of, um, of low-income kids in the middle range, like 46% for San Onofre Elementary, um, 42% for Sandberg, which is a San Diego school that's another standout, 55% for Los Penisquitos. I'm, I'm reading to you the percent of the third graders who are economically disadvantaged. Mm -hmm. There are a few that have um, really high percents of economically disadvantaged kids, like um, Rice Elementary in um, Chula Vista has 87% economically disadvantaged kids in the third grade, and 64% of them met the um, English language arts grade level standards. And then on the other end of the spectrum, the schools that are really not getting many of their low-income kids to meet grade level standards, you tend to see more of the schools that have lots and lots, the highest proportion mm -hmm. of low-income um, kids. So it's obviously not a... It's just a correlation, and we're noticing a correlation that the the schools with the highest concentrations of poverty tend to get the worst results for their low-income kids. And some of those places, literally not a single kid is meeting or, ex or exceeding, right? Right. We have two, on the English language arts side, we have two schools where not a single uh, low-income student met standards, Beacon Classical Academy, Charter School in National City, and Evangeline Roberts Institute of Learning, um, a charter school as well. And on the math side, we had, unfortunately, we had four schools that um, had not a single low-income kid meeting grade-level standards. Again, Beacon Classical, um, San Diego Cooperative Charter School, High Tech Elementary, which is in its first year, of, was in its first year of operations last year. Um, the other San Diego Cooperative Charter School, they have two, and then High Tech Elementary in North County. Hmm. Well, a lot to learn and, and get there. And so, sorry, High Tech Elementary North County had three three percent of their low income kids um, meeting grade level standards, not zero. Got it. Let's uh, move on to our what's working and talk about how you can access some of this. So, what's working is we want to throw a shout out to EdSource, which is the um, statewide news and research organization focused on education, and they've put together a really easy-to-use um, interface for looking up results, just the top-level, top-line results for both schools and districts. You can access that at edsource.org slash smarter 
dash balanced dash results at source.org. Yeah. So one thing you, you just gave me a quick tip looking at it too. The, um, the bar graphs are these blues that are hard to decipher. Right. And, uh, if you just look down, uh, at the, at the actual numbers, quickly adding up the meeting or the exceeding numbers can give you a, a snapshot of, of how many kids are meeting or exceeding, um, you know, those areas in, in the, in the, in the school that you're looking at, you can also look up districts and then you can break it out. Uh, these economic disadvantages or, or demographics, right? Yeah. That was actually on the CDE website, oh, the okay. California department of education website. Um, that's how you have to work with it there. They do have a lot more information on the CDE website. Okay. But if you're if you're wanting to just quickly look up your school or your district and how it's doing, I really recommend the EdSource. And then EdSource, in addition, is doing a bunch of um, analyses and really digging into the data. So um, they're playing an important accountability role in this moment in time when the state itself is redeveloping its accountability system. And so it doesn't have much to say about how schools and districts are doing. For our number of the week, I'm just going to um, tell us all the Chula Vista numbers because Chula Vista really is a standout among um, San Diego County school districts, a very economically diverse district. Um, and they had 62% of their kids meeting the English language arts standards and uh, 49% of them meeting the math standards this past year, which is, as we know, is, is better in a, in a meaningful way. Uh, than what the county and state have shown. So kudos to Chula Vista. Well, good job. So check that out. Uh, see how your schools are doing. And um, and again, these these tests aren't everything, but they're better. They are better. They are better. And uh, so let's embrace them and figure out what we can learn from the results. And of course, if you have any uh, stories about uh, your experience with these tests or anything else that you might want us to know about, you can always call 619 354 1085. That's 619-354-1085. And leave a message. Tell us uh, where in San Diego you're calling from and uh, your full name. And and let us know specifically if you don't want us to play what message you leave us on the air. And uh, we will look forward to hearing from you and your feedback. And otherwise, check out your schools and let us know what you see. This has been a production of The Voice of San Diego and The Voice of San Diego Podcast Network with my friend uh, Laura Cohn at the Education Synergy Alliance. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.